Welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. So, today on the show, we have none other than the infamous Morris Cole. Now, if you're a surfer or um, married to a surfer or you're in the surfing realm, you'll know who I'm talking about. But if you're not, let me paint the picture. He is one of the godfathers of surfing. Um, Morris grew up in a time when surfing was really at the at the it was at the dawn of existence of what it was would become, and he became one of Australia's best surfers, and is still to today one of the world's best surfboard shapers. Now he, fuck man, he's a bullet a gate. He's awesome, and he he's one of the most um, generous and giving people who I've met. He's really, um, yeah, I was humbled by his generosity. And, and it's not the first time that I've he, he's been like that. Um, we had a chat a while ago for another project that I've been working on. And he's just so generous and giving. Um, so, look, without further ado, uh, here is the conversation that I had with Morris, who, who was just someone that I've looked up to for years and you know, like living in Western Australia in the 90s and, you know, you know, I just, he was like a myth, a god. And I know that's crazy to say, right? And then I get to talk to him today. How fucking crazy is life? But anyway, um, I hope you enjoy the chat and, and Morris's journey. He's so open and honest. And, and I, honestly, we, we could have spoken for hours and we decided that there's going to be a part two. Um, because there's just so much to, you know, anybody's life. But I I tell you what, I I dare say, you know, I don't know anyone, I honestly don't know anyone who's really gone out there and lived it as hard as Morris. Um, So, I mean, I know people are writing books about him and there's all sorts of stuff going on with docs and things like that. So I'm just so honoured that he could be on the show and have a yarn with me. Uh, if you're listening, Morris, thank you very much. And for anyone else, I'll see you on the other side. You think this is, okay. is interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. What were you up to before you found surfing or surfing found you? Well, basically, I sort of spent the first three or four years of my life in Ballarat. My foster parents, I was adopted, so my foster parents came from Ballarat. So we spent the first few years in Ballarat. I sort of don't have, I've only got very vague memories there, but uh, there was some pretty, pretty amazing sort of weird memories. I was a pretty wild child from a very, very young age. As soon as I could walk, apparently, I could go over fences and used to disappear and go yabbying at the age of three and ran away from home at three and a half. And uh, so then we moved to Warrnambool, which was really different um, because that's where I had to go to school. So, you know, the usual thing, first day at school, you know, I got all everyone around me and a big gang and there was the bully that tried to take me down. And I only realised probably 15 years later when I went to Hawaii that I was actually a bit of a different kid. I had very dark skin. 
very dark skin and, you know, I don't think I've got a very Roman nose, have I? It's pretty, pretty, pretty flat, uh, pretty flat. Uh, anyhow, so so there's two ways of looking at it. I, when I was actually, I was a very timid kid. I was uh, very timid. Uh, just used to hang in the background, wasn't very good at sports, sort of went to the primary school in Warrnambool, you know, never really excelled at sport or anything like that. I was just a little, just average, but I was very, very timid. And uh, it was like that all the way through primary school, always got into a bit of trouble. I can remember, you know, in form or grade one, yeah, I had five rulers one foot rulers broken on the back of my legs that year and I only got the cuts which was a basically a leather strap on the hand but that was in the next year that was probably when I was really old six years of age um, so it was pretty pretty different different era so then when I went to the high school um, I remember I was at the high school the the summer uh, of, of the first year there sorry the first year I was there uh, I can still remember his name I was bullied and I never realised why people were picking on me and this Peter Beardsley guy picked on me and was pushing me around and I sort of just once again I was really timid in in year one and then uh, I went surfing that summer so now I'm up to about 11 12 years you know 12 years of age so when you went surfing did you go with friends or no 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 what I did was uh, I got some money for Christmas five shillings okay and I went and rented a surfboard it was a big huge probably it seemed huge to me because I was small and like a 10 foot big white mel with a big red number on it and Warnables are very shallow. It sort of gradually goes out. So I actually could walk the board out to where it was sort of, you know, probably waist, waist, waist deep. And I turned around, just lay on the board and stood up straight away. And I just went straight to the beach and went, how good was that? And there were other people there and I was sort of watching how people were surfing, but they were mostly beginners. So I, I just kept standing up and riding to the beach. And it was just... A, you know, I can sort of still, I can't exactly remember the first way, but I know when I came out of the water, you know, it was game on. I was stung. I was the, the, the surf. It was the first time that I'd ever, ever done anything that I was reasonable at. Yeah. So that whole, that, that, that summer, I actually had worked on a paper round to try and get money for a board. And they changed from pounds and shillings. This is where it goes, gets a little bit fuzzy. And I remember I, I bought my first board $36. It was $36 and it was a George Saffron, which was actually made in uh, Ocean Grove. And uh, all of a sudden, within that year, um, I, like on the weekends and even in the school holidays, my parents thought this was just a fad, this surfing thing can't lead to anywhere. Now, can I just ask, was there mark, Was there anyone like making surfing look cool in magazines or anything? No, like I that? wasn't no. even at that stage then. I was, yeah. hadn't got to that stage. I knew that there were guys in the surf club. Yeah. And there were these wild bunch of indi individuals from the Warnable Board Riders Club, and they had all lowered cars and big wide tyres and big V8s and, you know, I mean, 
customised FJ Holdens and stuff with board racks on the roof. So they were a really wild bunch. But I, I sort of wasn't thinking in those terms of joining everything. It just it was just a natural progression. And the way it was happened was I lived out near the Hopkins River. So my parents made me drag this nine-foot George Saffron on a push bike with no gears back and forwards all summer. Okay, so I and I had to be home for lunch. So I was probably doing nearly twenty k a day on a on a on a bike, and I'd hide my surfboard the first summer in the sand dune, go home and have lunch, have to have lunch, sit down lunch, you know, and uh, and then I'd go back for the afternoon. And I used to surf like probably ten or twelve hours a day and pedal up and down. So of course. I got really fit. <laughs> so the, the second year I was at high school. What a great summer. Oh, yeah, no, it was an incredible. It was a life-changing summer. Um, and, you know, then I went back to high school. First guy I see is Peter Beardsley. He came up to me, pushed me. I dropped him on the ground. Didn't know how to fight, didn't, didn't know. But I knew one thing. I knew how strong my legs were, and I got him in the scissors. Oh, yeah. Around, yeah, I sort of wrestled him to the ground and got him in the scissors, and I locked on. And I remember him crying. He was had tears, and he was screaming and crying. And I got into a lot of trouble from the, which I always was. But everybody from that moment on went, oh, wow, okay. And I went in the swimming sports that year. Uh, I was actually just about. You know, I was because there were the kids that were at the swimming clubs, and I was wearing board shorts, big floral board shorts down to my knee. But I was probably in the ended up being in the top five swimmers in the school. Then we had the school sports, and uh, so you know, I just thought I can run because I can ride a bike, and I never got tired. So I held all the intermediate records and cross country records for twenty plus years. And off I'd go, and I'd run and run and just love it. So, but I was sort of a solitary kid. Then I went into the surf club, yeah, because my parents went, "This is getting serious. I've got something at thirteen years of age. I've got to put my board somewhere." Yep. Uh, I lasted six months and got kicked out because uh, they made me do wear funny little hats. Uh, they tried to make me <laughs> run to the breakwater every day and back and then swim out and do all these sort of clubby things, and I just wasn't into it. So I used to hide. I, they'd run around and I'd just dart out. Someone gave me up and then I got suspended from surfing for a month, you know, and I basically uh, told the club captain to go and get fucked. Mm-hmm. So I got ejected from the club. And the parents weren't happy, but the good news was the Warnable board riders were waiting for me. So I'd been surfing just over a year now, and I'd picked it up really well. So uh, all of a sudden, I was the youngest guy in the Warnable board riders club, and and they became my mentors. So were they? Did they have like a comp within themselves, or they? Just oh yeah, yeah, no, we, they were. We were having competitions in those days. R- roughly, must where been, are we? What, where, we're Warnable. I must be thirteen or fourteen now. Yeah, you know. So this is sixty-eight, sixty-nine. We yeah. had board ride. Imagine having a board riders comp at Black Nose, and awesome. no one's ever surfed it. Unreal. Did we you went to surf crumpets? Yeah, I was first thrown in the water and. Uh, I jumped in the water off the point and looking at this wave because we were all driving to Crumpets, but as we were driving along that road, we saw the point lit up and everyone went, gee, 
Wow. Uh, it was a south swell, obviously, yeah. where normally in winter we had west swells in those days. So anyhow, so I, I clearly remember running back through the bushes. I rode a wave to the beach. You must have first been wave. so excited. Just, it was so, I'd never surfed a wave like that. It just kept coming and going. And then all of a sudden I realised that I've still got to catch two waves. And I had a bit of a panic attack, jumped on the track, was trying to drag him aboard, you know, like these big nine-foot bulky Malibus. Yeah. And, um, and a kangaroo jumped out and I fell into the bushes. I scratched myself. I shit myself. But I didn't know the other guys in the heat behind me, uh, they actually jumped off the rocks and knocked their fins out. So there was no one in the heat. Yeah, so I can't remember. I think yeah. I won the I won the every junior contest there in those days. But we used to compete over at Port Macdonald and against the the Roaders South Australian Border Riders clubs. So there was these. We'd have them at Warnable, Port Ferry, uh, Blacknose. We had a few club contests there, and there wasn't any surfers in Portland then. There was no one, I think, in Port Ferry either. But um, so we used to surf the passage and places like that. But um, out of that period, uh, Oigle, Ross Blaine became, uh, that's who they've named Oigles after. Okay, Oigle became a mentor with Dickie Voigt, Dick Steer, the older guys, they had all the cars. And uh, Oigle was the real surf, you know, he just, he was just, we were looking for surf everywhere. We were surfing Port Campbell in the 60s. You know, like the the left out there, and we were looking for breaks all around there. And you know, then one day he came back, Oigle came back, and he said, "I found this really good left in Port Ferry, and we could only surf on the weekends." And I said, "Let's go!" And we paddled out, and I looked at the right and went, "Gee, that right looks good." And he said, "Oh, it looks like there's too much kelp in it." So I caught a left and went over and surfed the right, and that's what they call Oigles today. You know, so in that period, Oigle was like the surf mentor. And then guys like Dick Voigt and Mick, uh, Mick the Jap O'Donnell, can you imagine a guy being a martial art artist, yoga, uh, vegetarian, Buddhist in the 60s, riding a George Greeno spoon who became one of the uh, top hairdressers in Australia and he, he actually ran and managed the Edward Beale salons. And that really? was Japs. That's why we call they, everyone calls it Logan's Beach. But Japs was, uh, that was where Japs came from, from him. And but, where is he today? Um, he's retired now. Uh, a lot of these guys are like a good 10 years older than me. Yeah. So they're in their, well into their 70s now. And, uh, what an amazing story. Well, you know, well, Jap was, you know, he, every, all of the guys in could fight because there were Sharpies. There was like mods, which the surfers weren't, which was sort of the cool looking crew. And then there was the skinheads and the Sharpies who yeah. were sort of, you know, uh, what do we call them today? Bogans, redheads, <laughs> I, I don't know, red, sorry, rednecks, whatever. But, um, you know, so there was constant fights. You know, and uh, I still remember the first punch I ever threw. I would have been 14 years of age. I'd been in the club for a year. And there was, we went to the Warnable Surf Club and they had this group, the Wild Cherries, who were just this raging, like, long-haired band, just, you know, like, anyhow. And then the fight broke out just below the surf club on the green. It was like 20 surfers and 30 of them. You know, it was quite a lot. It was an all-in brawl, but, you know, no cops, no nothing. It was sort of like sport. No one was pulling knives or bottles or anything like that. It was it was just, 
you know, bare knuckle fist fighting. And I was in the bush and looking at this young kid. And I saw a friend of mine get hit and I saw this guy and I ran out of the bushes, mate, and I hit this guy, nearly broke my hand, hit this guy and I hear, you little fucking prick. And I heard, he started chasing me. Mate, I ran home. <laughs> I ran to the flume. I, I was running that hard and that fast. I was so scared. So it was sort of um, pretty, uh, you know, like... Growing up in that era, like Port Macdonald, uh, we we went over there and I remember I had to come second or better in the Open. I won the juniors and they put me in the Open and I had to come second or better for us to win. And I came second, you know, and I was only a kid, yeah. you know, like no, 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 no leg ropes, you know. I mean, we're surfing, there's no wetsuits. We're surfing in footy shorts and footy jumpers in eight-degree water, God. Howling, like surfing hours on end, you know, howling wind. I mean, warnable, freezing westerlies and all of this. But when we actually came back to Port Macdonald, I'll never forget this. And we went into the fish and chip shop, who I've sent since met the, uh, the, the, the nephew of the guy who used to own the shop in the 60s, okay, yeah. who told me a whole bunch of stories and they remembered us there. And I remember they had a jukebox in the corner. And it was A Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin, their mm. first single. And they played it ten times. And, I mean, in those days, everyone was having a drink, but the kids weren't allowed to drink till we were 16. So, you know, there was no beers being offered to me. There was no, I mean, there was, there was pretty strong ethics, you know, like they were, they were looking after the kids. It was just me and a couple of the Benoon brothers and a couple of other, couple of, yeah, other, anyhow. So... So even to this day, every time I hear whole lot of love, I'm back in Port Macdonald at that contest. You know, there's a place, oh, yeah. I think it's called Boulders or something. There was a left there, but there was a right on the outside point. They moved the contest in the afternoon and, you know, so coming up in that whole, that, that whole warnable, we weren't travelling down here. We were going the other way, really. As far as we'd go east was Port Campbell. But west, we were going all the way to Port Macdonald and all the breaks in between. So it was sort of, yeah, it, it still was a very, very wild era because you had to remember we were losing boards out to sea and swimming in. And, you know, the first time I left Warnable Beach, um, they went to the passage at Port, Port Ferry, and the swell came up and it started closing out. So all the guys went in and I couldn't get in. And I was only probably wasn't fourteen, and I reckon that was the summer. I reckon I was thirteen. Anyhow, so I'm stuck out there. So what do they do? They just packed the cars up and left, and left me out there. Which of course I'm sitting out in the ocean with these just monstrous waves. Never been out of a beach break in my life. Ah, oh. uh, we'll get out. Uh, yeah. Stop that. The boys drove off. You're stuck out the back. Well, yeah, I'm. The boys have just packed the cars up. There was two cars, and they put all the boards on the roof. And they kept yelling and screaming, and hitting the horn, and I was too scared to come in. Like I didn't know how to get in because it was closing out the whole passage. So uh, <laughs> they just packed the cars up and left. And I just, as I saw them driving, I just was paddled for this wave. I didn't stand up or anything. I just lay down and I just lay down and I hung onto the back of the board and I bounced all the way into the lagoon. And then as soon as I bounced up there, I think it was Oigle or Dick, Dick Steer it might have been, 
jumped out from behind a bush. They were watching me and they just drove the cars back over the edge to try and get me in. So I figured I survived that at the age of 13 and uh, there was so many things I survived in those early days when we, the first time we went to White's, I reckon I was 15 then and uh, we took the afternoon off school. And uh, we're sitting out at White's in Portland and I see this fin out to sea, like west, monster fin, like like three foot out of the water and a big tail fin. It looked huge. So we went big shark, so we went in. But it was so hot and southeast and the waves were that good. I went, we watched for about an hour and no shark. I went back out. And of course, I, I as I surfed a wave... They all started jumping up on the up and down on the beach. And I went, oh, they're just having me on, you know. They're just trying to scare me. Because I kept looking out over to the west. There was nothing anyhow. So I paddled back out. And I was paddling back out. And you always take off next to the rock there. And there was one went a little bit wide. And they were whistling and screaming. I was just going, you bastard, you know. And I actually spun around and took it. And they actually said what they saw was... The thing came from the behind the point. It went out to sea and circled back all the way around and came back from the east, like out where it we knew. were. Oh, it knew. We were there. And uh, if I had a paddle over the way, they said it. I would have paddled on top of it. You know, and there's been uh, – that's one of the I – th- I think they had – they caught an 18-footer there a couple of years later and it was it was the biggest shark they'd ever caught on a line. It was a world record for a lot of years. And if you ask Pete Jono, uh, you know, Pete Jono got tangled up with a great white in the keyhole there. And, you know, he got dragged was out. Was it trying sea. to eat him or was it just a mistake? Just, it's just a mistake, you know. I'm watching Shark Week right now. I watch every shark program I possibly can. You ever seen the one where the guy, the doctor, he he was he was swimming down and putting mirrors up to them? No, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, and like, and so he'd go down, or he'd go down and put up a big mouth representing a big, like the same mouth that it would see if it was. Yeah, he's doing yeah, and he was no cage. Yeah, just. Yeah. Oh, no, I've been watching this week. It's Shark Week this week. That's what I'll be doing, you know, when I, I've recorded a whole bunch of stuff. It's all new. So do you, I They know, don't we bother know, me. We know nothing about them. Well, we're knowing more and more, but one of the things is we know we're not on the menu. So, but if we're not on the menu and the hits that get hit in WA, are they just fucking toying with us? Yeah, they're coming in. They're coming in and having a taste. And and a lot of the time, it's the juveniles. Anything twelve foot and under. And if you if you know anything about up, the juveniles are probably the most dangerous because they're really skitterish. They're in the shallows more because they still haven't got enough power in their jaws until they get over twelve foot to actually bite a seal. So they're living on fish and stingrays, and you know they really are scavenging and they're learning. So when they get a bit bigger, that's when they start mistaking us for seals and that. The really big ones, like I've just been watching this show on Colossus. It's this 22-footer in South Africa. Oh, South Africa. South Africa. This thing, I just saw a whole program on. It's so damn smart. And they've got 300 recorded different sharks and everyone's got a different personality. And Colossus, they've been trying to catch it for 20 years yeah and uh they just showed how smart it is it sh- it was it shadowed the boat 
the boat was trying to get it and, you know, record it and do stuff like that. And every time they dropped the lure off, it was there in minutes. Then they realised this thing's actually stalking us. We're looking for it, but it's actually here all the time. So just, you know, I mean, it's just hysterical, shark. The whole thing about sharks is just, what is it? I think two people died last year, something like that. Yeah. There's more people killed by bees. Oh, bees and cars <laughs> and, like, no one questions getting in the car. No, it? or hippopotamuses or lions, tigers, uh, what's the other one? Elephants. Elephants kill, I think, a 1,000 people or 500 people a year. Yeah. We don't go out and try and decimate them. It's just because they're cuter. Mm. Well, they're cuter. And it's, I mean, sharks to me are just the most beautiful streamline. It's like a, sur- you know, a beautiful surfboard. You know, to me, it's just this this just prehistoric thing that's just been fine-tuning itself for 100 million years or, or however long. But, you know, they're, they're an awesome, an awesome thing. Yeah. All right. So you found your click with the Bournable Board Riders. Yep. And let's just say you're in year 12. Yep. Did you... Did we get there? I nearly didn't yeah, get there. Yeah, no, no. I got to year 11. Then I yeah. went into the Advanced Institute of, of Education, which is now a TAFE yeah. in Warrnambool. Yeah. But I lasted three months and I started going surfing. I started surfing bells and that with one of the guys from there. So at 16, 17, I started doing the first trips here. Yeah. Um, in 1970, I came and looked at the world titles. Hold on, were you competing, sorry to cut you off, but were yeah. you competing for the Australian titles at that point? No, 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 okay, yep. no, no. I was sort of a, a Johnny come lately on the scene. In 1970, I went down to the world titles. I can't even remember who took me, so I would have been 16. And I saw Bells and I saw all these surfers. I actually saw Wayne Lynch surf for the first time. I can, I've still got the memories in my head because no one knew what he was doing. He was coming off the bottom and doing backhand re-entries. I think they were deducting points for him not going straight. I mean, it sort of seemed like that. So I saw him from a distance and just went, wow, that's the famous Wayne Lynch. And then I saw, you know, but by that stage, the, the, the surf magazines was Surfer Magazine from America. And we'd probably get it two months after it was published. So that was sort of our only... And then Rod Brooks had a column every Wednesday night in the Herald wasn't the Herald Sun then, I think it was the Herald, and that was the only contact we had with surfing, like down there. Rod Brooks wrote an article in a mainstream newspaper about surfing. Yeah, he'd had a a weekly column. That's unbelievable. He had a weekly column, and um, so that was where I was starting to read about these these, the surfers up in Torquay, but for us, Torquay was so far away, it was like nearly a three-hour drive in those days, you know? And that's why we always went 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 west because mm. it was closer and we could check lots of spots on the way. We didn't know about Gibson Steps. We didn't know about Joanna. We didn't know about that coast of the Polo Bay or the back of Lawn. You know, I mean, people knew about Cathedral then, Lawn Point, Bells, but really it was Bells, Winky, Winky on low tide only. You couldn't surf it on high tide because you'd lose if you lost your border to destroy it. So there were. It, it was really, really raw, and uh, Bird Rock, huh? Bird Rock. No, no, that was later. That was in the early seventies, more when the boards got shorter. But it was it was in that seventies period, that early seventies period, when 
my parents drove me up here because everyone said I should compete in the juniors up here. Mm. And I, I, was, I was that in, introverted that I'd dry, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. My parents would drive me here, so we'd get here by 7. And then uh, I'd go there and I'd walk to the to, – to, I think it was – 50 cents to register or something I'd come back and go oh, we're too late and so you know a couple of times there I was too scared to to, to even go in it and then one day I we went and I went and bought Rod Brooks was managing Clem Bell and I actually uh, went in there and I bought his second hand twin fin right and I did the same I'd done the same old thing I'd said oh you know to my parents oh, I'm sorry we, we just came we got here a bit late to enter and blah 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 I think they were getting on to me by that stage and the contest was on at Drano's at Torquay Beach and I went and surfed the leftover I remember Brooko came out, uh, over to me and went you know he didn't know me from a bar of soap and he just I surfed over there and they had the finals of the juniors and he came over and said what are you doing you would have won the final. And I'm sort of going, what, sorry? And I sort of didn't get it. So I actually actually went in the Victorian Championships that year. And, uh, and you know, John Pawson, Ray Thomas, Richard Evans, there were all these, like, people I'd read about in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. And I actually got to the final. And uh, sort of no one was talking to me. They did, just didn't know where I came from. And because I looked so different, they just didn't, you know. It was sort of, whoa. And uh, when uh, I came out of the water from the final, I was just so stoked. you got no idea how elated that I was there and I was walking out of the water with all these guys. And Porso looked over at me and said, when did you knock your fin out? And I remembered when I paddled out, I felt something, but I wasn't used to rocks because yeah. I came from Warnable, you know, which is a sand you know, beach break. Anyhow, I'd surfed the whole the whole final with one fin and a twin fin. Luckily, it was the bottom hand side, and I'd lost the cutback side, and I still came third. And you know, and Porso and I, I sort of looked and few of the boys turned around and laughed and said, man, you did pretty good, you know, because I was sort of a year younger than them. And it was from that moment on that I became friends, like, with the Torquay crew. And Porso sort of took me under his wing and raided too. And anyhow, so uh, that following that following summer, I just quit everything and went to Queensland and uh, went to Queensland with Murray Burton because Murray Burton lived uh, in Cobden and uh, Tim Byrne, one of them, anyhow, and he used to surf at Port Campbell a little bit. He's originally from down south. Yeah, oh, yeah he's yeah. originally from down there. So I drove his bongo van. He had this little bongo van, which was just, it didn't even do 80 kilometres an hour. Got to Melbourne, he got the flu, and he had to, I had to drive from Melbourne to Queensland and I'd never driven before. <laughs> and I remember I was actually in a petrol station uh, where we had we, we had to stop, and I had to reverse, and I had to, and he was so unconscious and coughing and spluttering that I had to ask the the gas attendant, you know, the petrol attendant, uh. to put it in reverse for me. <laughs> and he's just looking at me, just going, "Are you for real?" Like you know. And I drove that whole all the way to Queensland, you know, and I went up to Queensland and. Stayed at uh, Carumban and so. What was the mission? Just wanted to go and surf. Just wanted to go surfing. It was just just on. It was just yeah. 
there was just some something inside me because at that stage, you know, we'd been through all the schooling and that. The hippie era was in full movement. We were questioning everything and fuck the system and, you know, anything to do with the system. We were just fucking just whatever they said. We did the opposite. Keep your hair short. We had long hair. You've got to shave every day. We didn't shave. You know, we were, we wore... You know, big T-shirts and was conscription going on around. Oh yeah, conscription yeah. was a really big issue. You know, and you know, I missed that. I was in the next draft. Was it scary? Like you, everyone was in a bit of fear. Oh yeah. yeah, everyone was. You know, everyone was really. Uh, I mean, I wasn't going. Yeah. You know, there was. I was on. You know, I thought I could hide in the desert or something like that. Because the more we were learning about surfing, the more there was this big family out there. Yeah, you know, it was just like, you know, all of a sudden on the Torquay crew, I met with all the crew from the East Coast, you know, like Phil Grace and Mickey Pierce and guys from the island, and and just all of a sudden it was just like, wow, this big community and contests was sort of there wasn't. It was good to win, but it wasn't the winning. It was the, it was the. Uh, Camaraderie, in, yeah, now no, the interaction of different ideas, yeah. really creative, innovative people, where the frontiers were just being broken everywhere. People were finding new spots. The boards were changing. We got wetsuits. <laughs> we got wetsuits. <laughs> like fuck, you have no idea what the first two years was like. And then without wetsuits, you know, up till I was fifteen, and then got a short john could surf for four or five hours in winter in a short john in Warrnambool, you know. Then we got short sleeve steamers and then then, uh, anyhow. So there was just everywhere, there was just this feeling of like we were the lords of the universe, we were just creating, we were pioneering. So what an unreal time to be part of it because now it feels saturated. You know, and you're like... There's pockets of it. It's saturated. The money's come in. uh, You know, mediocrity now seems to me to be just accepted, just to be accepted as as it's okay. You know, it'll do. You know, and I'm I'm from another era. I, I don't take that. I'm never happy with virtually any boards I shape. I see stuff in my mind, it's ticking, you know, I was just talking before about the Kyleni stuff, the towing stuff, stuff that I've seen Ross do. I know I've got a vision of the future and I'm still trying to get boards to go faster, be able to turn. Um, I was really impressed with the the guns in the in the Piahi or the Jaws event, you know, especially, uh, easy to say, because Billy, uh, Billy Kemper's and Albie's boards, yeah. they seem to get to the bottom quicker. Um, they seem to be able to turn them a bit earlier. So design is helping them and technology is helping these guys to, to push the limits even further. So it was the same then, you know. It's it sort of, uh, as the boards were changing every year, you know. Someone was coming out with something. Boards were going shorter. There was, there was, there was single fins and, you know, like it, it was just like, wow, where are we going with this? Then we started having quivers instead of one board and going, going shorter and, you know, how short can we go? Wow, we've gone down to, you know, we're riding seven twos now. Wow, that's unbelievable. And then we went to six eights and some genius went, well, let's just try a six o, you know, but make them wide and thick and fishes and stuff like that. So... 
It was. It was just an incredibly creative, innovative period and all sorts of pioneering. There were frontiers being smashed. You know, every year there were breakthroughs. When you went north with Murray, were you, was he shaping? Yep, he was just, he'd just started shaping a couple of years before. Yeah. And had you done any yet? No, no. no. After that, after I, um, after that trip, uh, I came back, lasted a week in, uh, in Warrnambool and then just went, I'm going to live in Torquay. And I think I had $12 to live in Torquay. So then I came down here and stayed at the hot box, sort of the guys knew me and that. And then one day uh, I was sleeping sleeping outside. I was sort of homeless, I guess. And people found out that I was just sleeping there and just didn't sort of phase me. I had a girlfriend at the pub where I was getting a free porterhouse steak uh, for every lunch, so I didn't need food. That would do me every day. And I was cruising then uh, John Sparrow, Pyburn, mm. Just picked me up one day and said, why don't you just come and stay at my place? So basically then um, I went back to his house in Price Street, opposite the old cop shop, and sort of got a room. And Sparrow was just amazing. You know, we'd go surfing with him. He was such a an anal technician. You know, everything was just, you know, whereas I was really, an, he was a sort of a digital person. I'm sort of an analogue bit blurry on the edges and anyhow so um so that was a, a period of time when I had to get a job to support myself so uh one of my first jobs was gluing wetsuits at rip curl on the night shift I lasted one night the surf got good and about a week after I hadn't turned up to work I ran into Singding Brian Singer in the water and he said I guess you know you're fired <laughs> And I went, yeah, I figured that. And he went, fuck, it's good waves. How good's the waves been? I went, yeah, fucking great. And that's all that sort of mattered. So then because I hung around Rip Girl that much, um, one day Claw said to me, hey, why don't you shape a board? You're hanging around there enough. And I was watching Donnie Allcroft and Jim Pollock. And they helped me shape my first board. So I just shaped it. We put it in the um, we put it in the in the uh, in the shop that weekend. It was like the shop was about twelve foot long and six foot wide. It was just nothing in there. And Ray Thomas, who normally worked the shop, was had the sh- that. W- was the shop down near the pub at this point? Or was it up in where no, it is this now? Is, no, 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 no. This is the old bakehouse. Okay, yeah. This is the old bakehouse. I can actually go and see that garage that's still there. And that's where I learned to shape. It's still there in that cement sheet house up the back. That was where the wetsuits were made. Obviously, the whole uh, there was a bakery, an old bakery, um, and uh, so it was converted into a surfboard factory. And originally, Brian used to or singing used to he used to shape. No, he used to glass and sand. That's right, and claw shaped. So they did that for a few years, and Donnie came in. But the interesting thing is that first weekend, Steve Perry yep. actually worked the shop that weekend just because he had nothing to do. So I got to meet Steve, you know, and in that period I got to know Steve really well. Well, the first board he sold that weekend was my surfboard. So I got to make another one and another one. And all of a sudden, I really, really... Uh, 
you know, I wasn't doing a lot. And then all of a sudden I was poached because I was, you know, I was, I was the, Wayne Lynch had sort of retired, he'd sort of retired from competition, but I was the hottest young thing in the state by far. You know, I mean, I was, yeah. Australian title yet? No, no, no. I'd, I'd just been doing, I'd done the Victorian titles and came second in the juniors. Then I went, the following year I won the Open, uh, the Open, uh, <laughs> I double comboed everyone in the final. I actually, when I was in the Victorian titles when, when I was 18, I got five waves from low tide Rincon, behind Rincon, all the way through to the bowl, down into the shore break, and then I'd flick off, and, oh no, sorry, right into the beach, yeah. and I was so damn fit that I could sprint from halfway down to Winky Pop, and I could sprint all the way back round to the back of Rincon, and I used to go around to the, even the back of Rincon then. So, yeah, so I'd won that hands down. So all of a sudden, um, you know, they were thinking I could win Australian titles and do all of this sort of shit. And uh, I went to, that year, I went to uh, Western Australia um, with Claw in the combi and my dog and a guy called Johnny Patton and there was so much... Across the Nullarbor? Across the Nullarbor, mate. Awesome. Oh, yeah, wait for it. And about 100 k's out of Sojourner, I rolled the combi. No. Oh, yeah, no. I was sitting in there. hadn't been a car on the road for a couple of hours, and I was bored shitless. And we only had enough room in the combi where you could sleep and put your feet where the between the seats. There were so many wetsuits. We were delivering wetsuits, Rip Curl wetsuits, to, to, um, to Western Australia. We had 13 boards on the roof. The combi was so overloaded. It was a camper combi. And I'd just been sitting there, no licence or anything, you know, and I'd just been sitting in the middle of the road looking up and the road just went on and on and on and on. <laughs> and I actually got really bored and I had my dog, right, sitting in the, uh, in the passenger, uh, on the passenger floor and Claw's toe was sticking out. And I was flicking biscuits, bits of biscuits, and he was snapping, trying to he'd get the biscuit. And I was trying to get one. I was trying to get him to bite Claw's toe. So I was watching the road, and we had a, like a, a 30 to 30 knot, probably 60 kilometre an hour crosswind. So I had the, the steering wheel on an angle where I was pulled into the middle of the road, and I was just driving along the middle of the road. No problem. I hadn't seen a car for ages. And all of a sudden, I flicked the, the bit of biscuit and it landed on Claw's toe. But right when I should have looked, I felt something and I looked up and there was a, I can still see it, it was a, a, a whole newt, an old pale blue one, came out of this little dip and I didn't know that they'd come down a tree line because I could see a long way ahead, but they'd come down off one of the, the farms. Yeah. I flicked the... Flicked the uh, the biscuit on top of Claw's toe and looked up and this car came out and the back was full of kids. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I pulled pulled it round to miss them, which I have, but the combi went up on two wheels. And then I pulled it back, all right, and I've gone, oh, I've got it, and it went up on two wheels that way. And then it went back onto two wheels the other way and the wind got us and we rolled down the embankment. So here I am, I can still remember this, I'm, I'm lying on the ground, I've got this guy John Patton hanging from his seatbelt, just there, next minute I hear, it's just dead quiet, I hear fire, oh. claw, 
claw comes flying out, and as I lift my head, I can still see Claw's ugly boot. He just he bounced off my head, and of course I've got bolted through the windscreen. We're going through the windscreen now. Yeah, dog's gone, um, and uh, so Johnny's still hanging up there, screaming, thinking that it's just the petrol, and it was Claw thinking, shit, petrol smell fire, and he actually said fire out loud. And we're out in the middle of the road, and Claw was jumping up and down, and whew, you know he's made it. Poor John, he's, we wouldn't go and get him. He's screaming Stuck his head in. off. Oh, he's screaming, thinking the car's on fire. He's an American, American guy, right? Uh, and uh, anyhow, he finally got undone and he nearly broke his neck because he fell. <laughs> when he un- finally got the seatbelt undone, he fell. So he went into Sejuna that night. and um, You were lucky to have survived. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went went over there and uh, we first surfed caves and caves was perfect and fell in love with it. It was so big, we actually, Castles was breaking on the, the bombing outside. So Brooko and I went out and surfed that. You know, it was probably, I don't know, 12, 12 foot plus. No leggies or anything. Didn't know about sharks, but we stopped there. But I'd lost my dog. Yeah. In the crash. Yeah. So I took an ad out in the local paper. And then I went to the Australian titles and it was a bit of a disaster. It was, the surf wasn't very good and... My head wasn't into it. Uh, I d- don't know. It, it, it was like a, a period. I'd just met Wayne Lynch, uh, Bird Rock crew, Fledge. Just, I was becoming more of a hippie than, you know, the competition thing really didn't, it was starting not to really mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a good way to travel, you know, and if you could get someone to pay for petrol like Rip Girl or something, I guess it was worthwhile, you know. So, you know, in that in that time, of course, this is when I'm probably 19 now. Um, you know, New Year's Eve, took some acid LSD and met my wife, Anne. She was on acid. She thought I was a vampire New Year's Eve. Was so. this back here or in the West? No, this is here. Sorry, yeah. I've jumped back. Yeah. Uh, I've just jumped back into that time because I was already going out with Anne then. Yeah. And... Um, in with the Bird Rock crew, which was basically when I was 18, uh, Fledge and those guys sort of took me in, uh, you know. I was a wild little fella, so I wasn't bad as backup even then. But uh, like in those days, you weren't even allowed in the car park to look at Bird Rock. You weren't allowed to walk near it. You weren't allowed to look at it, let alone paddle out. So we had, there was a like a little commune there of, you know, everyone sharing the rent, sharing the food. There was a sort of a commune there. They were making leather bags and just this amazing group of people. Brewster, who helped found Quicksilver with um, with Greeny. You know, Fledge was the, uh, already a Victorian champion. Uh, you know, Randall's dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyhow, so he, well, he, was, he was the best surfer yeah. you know, at Bird Rock. He was the rubber man. If you saw Randall surf... His dad was, you know, taught me to tube ride, you know, at Bird Rock. You know, I'd watch him in any hour. And what was great then, you weren't allowed to cut. You had to go around wide, you'd number off, you'd take your turn, you know. But anybody who paddled out would incur the wrath of Iglish Rossi, who was this mad Lebanese surfer tripping out of his head and just, and then Boong, uh, I don't know, you remember Boong, don't you? No, anyhow, John Robinson. He was sort of the mouth and the sort of semi-tough guy, but he really couldn't fight. But Iggy could, and Iggy was like a maniac. So it was just 
the perception there was it was you don't mess with those guys. Yeah. So the Bird Rock crew were just, they never surfed Bells or Winky, they only surfed Bird Rock, you know, which for wasn't, I, I liked all those big long waves, you know. Yeah. So I was sort of a little bit out of the out of the mould, but you know they were all the girls there. There were wild parties. There was just all sorts of shit going on there. You know it was just amazing. You know, um, you know some of the Easter parties were held there, and you know the Easter period in those years was you know everybody someone stayed with anyone. There were no one was renting houses. No one had any money. You had to stay with someone in a room or on a floor or on a couch. You know, so that's when we got to meet all the New South Whalers, you know, and the, and the Queenslanders and, you know, the Michael Petersons, the, the people who are really close to the Bird Rock crew. So is this, um, is this is pre-water-cooled days? Yeah, yeah. And, but you're still shaping for Rip Curl? I'd done a little bit of shaping for Rip Curl. <laughs> and then a little bit of shaping for Rip Curl. But then when I got, Brooko got me to come to Clem Bell sort of poached me, you know, and because uh, I was surfing in all the contests, winning them all. Um, and then uh, I had to ride Dennis Day surfboards, strapper surfboards, Dennis Day. But he, fuck, you'd ask for a 6'2 and you get a 6'6. You ask for a 6'6 and you get a 6'2. And, you know, so he didn't really listen. So I really started making my own boards then and I made them with fledge. And, you know, Fledge made me a board which really upset him. I won my first Victorian title on this 6-7 diamond tail, black fin, pale blue tint uh, board that Fledge shaped. So then I started going, well, if he can shape, I can shape. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started shaping there and I started doing pretty well, you know. And um, anyhow, I went to, oh, yeah. So we've now got to go back to getting the dog in the desert i got home from western australia chip chop this this is a little bit of an important bit um because got home and there's a letter they found my dog unbelievable on a farm at sejuna it flew out of the car flew out of the car went through the windscreen never saw it again put an ad in the local paper and they found him he was a half shepherd half doberman uh. regai and um anyhow and so I just said to, to Anne, well, we need a car. And she said, oh, we'll take, we'll take uh, Shirl's. And Shirl's car was a 1954 Volkswagen with the pop-up lights on the side. You wouldn't have even seen one. No backlights, had a service, neither of us had a licence, and we drove to Cactus. You've gone the dog rescue. We've gone the dog rescue. But oh, wow. I've, I wanted to go back and surf, so we went for a week. Yeah. And, of course, I got there. And I was looking at this guy, and I was going, there's a guy out there. It's a bloody, it's an abo. It's this dark guy, you know. God, can he fucking surf? And at that stage, I was very, a lot darker than I am now because I was just in the sun all the time, you know, like shorts in summer. Yeah. There was nothing else to wear. So I'd just spend 12 hours a day in the sun fucking for three or four months, you know. You just sort of... I would just be black. And I looked at this guy and I went, fuck, I never heard, saw him. It was Reno Abalera doing a movie um, called uh, Rolling Home with Paul Witzig. And I got to meet him and he said, bruh, come to Hawaii. Come to Hawaii. You know, when I'll look after you when you come to Hawaii. So that was 
coming that winter. So this is June of 73. But in that time, you know, I'd met Wayne and started surfing a lot with Wayne and sort of getting into the shaping and looking at his shaping machine and we'd go surfing together. And I remember that we'd be surfing. Uh, and when I won that Victorian title, we were surfing one time. We were in, in the Polo Bay maybe the weekend after and there was a Rod Brooks's column. There it was, Morris Cole's Victorian champion. And I remember Wayne looked at me and he went, do you do contests? And I went, yeah, just a bit. But that's it wasn't something in our lives. That was just like a one percenter. Yeah. You know what I mean? It really wasn't relevant to anything we were doing because we were exploring and surfing all the reefs from Pink House and Boneyard and uh, Moo Cow. all the way down to Castles, Joanna. We were starting to surf the reefs down at uh, what we call Duck Bay. They call the well now and, oh, yeah. and bonies and stuff like that. Yeah. So one, one second, you got the dog. Yep, we've got the dog. Yep. Met Reno. Yep, back. And then after all of this has gone on, Wayne goes, we're going to Bali. I went, where? Bali. He said, oh, this is, we're going to do a trip. All we've got to do is just scratch 300 bucks together and we're going to go and surf this place. Um, we're going to go. Nat's coming along. Uh, we're going to, it was the first tour. I think Claw, I think Singing. I can't sort of. Jack McCoy came along. Was, Iggy, was he Iggy surfing came, or filming? Filming. Yeah. I love his films. Yeah, anyhow. So, well, he was sort of taking photos then because we knew Jack from the early days. He started a restaurant here called The Summer House with... Tony Squirrel and Paul Baston, who has now become... In Torquay? Yeah, this was in Torquay. We had the Summer House Vegetarian Restaurant in 1972, maybe, you know, and the Easters were all held there. It was great food and, you know, any bring your own. And Jack that, McCoy from down here? No, but he, he was he, he came and lived down here for quite a while in the early days, yeah. yeah. So, um, anyhow, so... Uh, we're going to Bali, Bali now, yeah, with the whole crew. And I go, what is it? And he said, oh, apparently it's a big island. It's a big point. And there's rights break down one side of it and lefts break down the other side. And uh, anyhow, so uh, <laughs> uh, off we went to Bali, you know, and uh, we sort of went on this trip and we were stunned, you know, like we were, what a place well, before any real white men were there it was there was a few americans that were from the brotherhood in the dana point they were hiding from their uh of le- their legit, legit brotherhood oh this is the real brotherhood this was the people out of dana point who were responsible for all soft drugs being imported into america right they were based in bali they had connections all the way through Thailand, which was basically, you know, books have been written by Mark Ritter, and uh, I've just been quizzed on this for Jerry Lopez's new film. Yeah, so I'm pretty fresh on all of this. So they're pretty heavy dudes. No, they weren't heavy. They were just hippies. Yeah, right. There was no guns. There was no violence. It was just changing the world and the best hash and the best, the best pot in the world. And you know, everyone was doing that because what you had to have a look at in those days was. How do you think people were travelling everywhere and discovering and setting stuff up? They were, they were smugglers. Oh. Now, I'm not going to go into that a lot because there's a film and a book coming out. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and 
I've signed a confidentiality agreement on one of them and there is a lot of implications for a lot of people and companies. The real story, what went on from 69 to oh, 72, even the making of, uh, the, making of uh, the Endless Summer. I mean, all those guys, really? all those surfers, yeah. everyone was smuggle, smuggling a pound here, a pound there, and what were we trying to do? Or well, they were trying to do, us, whoever, trying to get a new surfboard and get a ticket somewhere. Yeah. And that was the only real avenue because you couldn't work a job. And the reason you couldn't work a job is because we had no surf forecasts. We had to wake up every morning. We knew from the local weather, basically, if it was going to be cold or hot the next day and the wind direction. No one had a two-day forecast. So we were based, no one could tell when swell was coming. So we you were didn't on know about off seasons and well, like we, we had an idea, you know, we, we, we were getting ideas, but yeah. th- we were learning so much at that time about the weather, yeah. you know, and trying to work out when swells come and what it looked like and the maps we had access to were in the paper. Oh, I remember in the 90s, you always look at the synoptical charts and look for the lows with the highs. The and bottom, they were, yeah. yeah, yeah when well, they got a- try and imagine the 60s. Yeah, no. <laughs> so basically, in the 70s, we woke up every morning and if the surf was good, every plan that you had, you abandoned that day and went surfing. Yeah. It was simple, so you couldn't hold a job. Sounds great. Yeah, sounds great. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, I was, I was basically making $15 a week uh, shaping and doing bits and pieces everywhere. So $7.50 was for the rent and I could live, I had enough money to buy food and survive the week on $7.50 and I had 40 cents left, 20 cents for a pot on Friday night and 20 cents for a pot on Saturday night in the hopes that you'd grab a chick or someone would shout you a drink somewhere. Yeah. Like you, you couldn't, we, we virtually couldn't afford to get pissed in those days because none of us had real jobs. Uh, yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. So, anyhow, so the, the drug culture became a pretty big thing. So, you know, there'd be a group of us, all friends, mm-hmm. and it'd be your turn to buy the ounce and split it up, the hash, and, and you know, and you might make 20 bucks that week. So, every month you made 20 bucks. <laughs> And that supplemented just so much. Yeah. Know, anyhow, so you had to remember surfboards then, your new surfboard was under $100. Uh, so you know, when it puts it in perspective, you know, it was and they're, they're 10 was times the less, price yeah, 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 now. Yeah. So anyhow, so that, that was sort of going to Bali, went there, which just blew my mind. I could go into a, go into a ton of this, but where are we going to get to on this? Well... I thought we'd go for a bit more. Uh, I usually pull it at about an hour and a half or an hour right now. Yeah, okay. Um, no, no, because we... We could go forever on... No, no, no. Well, it, yeah. it just works it through. We might have to do a part two. Yeah, we could definitely do if a part two. If people are interested, I mean, it's yeah. just... if Because if, if, it is. It's a little bit of history. And because I've done a book, uh, not just on the reverse V, I've had Nick Carroll mm-hmm. um, basically go through my whole life. I think I did 30 or 40 hours of interview with him. Wow. Just telling stories and him just collating it and putting together and bouncing around here and there. Because 
the barley thing was huge. It was a huge, big impact on me. Um, I'd never, none of us had seen anything like it in our life. The people would just lend you money. You didn't have to pay for anything. There was, there was no such thing as thieving in barley, or you know, there was. They weren't hassling you for, to, you know, to sell your stuff. It was just utopia. I mean, I've got, I've seen it once in my life where people actually lived within their means they were the happiest people on earth they had the greatest surf on earth they treated us like kings we treated them like shit um you know which was pretty pretty much a modus operandum in those days yeah and uh anyhow so you know we went there did the film did you uh, surf padang and no no that was the, i i came back um and lasted a month in July. It was just the end of July. And then I just said to Wayne, or Wayne said to me, fuck it, let's go back. We'll take the girls with us. And I'd take Anne with me and he'll take Kay. And uh, so we went back. And that was the one, that was the trip where there was just Wayne and I, Mike Boyham, Fast Eddie, and the ex-Brotherhood guys that were still there. Um, and there was hardly anyone on the island surfing. There was maybe five of us. Then Wayne broke his collarbone again. Surfing? No. Coming home one night from this restaurant to Marcos, which was on the other side of the island, he hit a big pile of dirt, came off the motorbike and broke his... So then he caught malaria in oh the hospital. Oh, my God. And we sent him home. So I was left there for about 10 days, I think. It was a week or 10 days. And so that's when I surfed with Mike Boyham all the time. We were taking mushrooms and one day... One of the first days, he said, let's go and surf Uluwatu, and it was pretty big. And we, we took all these mushrooms, and it was I took too many. You know, like, <laughs> but it got worse. I took probably about 20, you know, and he, he was having he, – he, at that stage, I didn't know. He'd been having them every day, so he was up around 100 or so. Because so, his tolerance was building up. Oh, his tolerance yeah. was huge. It was just anyhow. So – I, we went out to Uluwatu. And this, is, this is where all the stories, that's why, yeah. And uh, I watched him and I was going, the first time I'd been surfing with him, him and me at Uluwatu, and I had a 710 and, you know, I was cruised along making waves and flicking off down to the race course, had a few waves. And then I watched Mike and he was so off his head. He used to take off right in front of the cave and then just start like a cowboy, start like he had a, like he had a, his hat in his hand, he'd go, yee-haw, and he'd be doing these circles in the air with his hand, yee-haw, and he would go dead straight, straight into the cave, and then come out and do it again. And eventually he went in and left me out there, and I was just off my head now, and I went, fuck, oh, I could see Cooter in the distance, I thought. So I paddled to Cooter for the whole day. I paddled. What? <laughs> <laughs> And I can barely remember. I can remember lefts and like uh, it was places like Disneyland. It was like not Disneyland, but just like these enchanted gardens and points. And I, I know I went down through Padang. I remember surfing, caught a little left. And I just kept going, going, going. And I went across. I remember I went by went by this big this big. I thought it was a big river mouth. Yeah. You know, it was that big bay at uh, anyhow where all the boats are coming in and out. What a fucking and experience. And they're looking at this fucking guy paddling on a surfboard, like probably smiling and laughing and cackling to himself. And I got back and it was pitch black. 
Uh, and they were panicking. They had people out everywhere. They had people looking for me. And I've just finally just coming down and just went, wow. And they go, where did you, what did you do? And when I told them that they, I don't even, it feels like I never did it, but I know I did it because yeah, I can yeah. remember the reception I got was there was people fucking yelling at me and there was people in awe and there was people just going, what the fuck? Because they were all in those days, the Balinese was still really, really, it was taboo sort of out there because, you know, that couple of hundred years before the, the Muslims came and rather than be captured, the Hindus, they all jumped off the cliffs there. So it was like there was a couple they of thousand suicide. people. suicide. Yeah, yeah. Rather, rather, than be than, rather than be captured. So there's all this mythology around Uluwatu and it was like, you know, like it was a, a pretty scary place. Yeah, but... Um, you know, we surfed Sanua that trip. There was a friend of mine, George Simpson, from Western Australia, and we surfed Sanua, and I got the longest barrel of my life. I had a 7.6 keel, and I got a barrel from Sanua, like off the takeoff, trimmed in, and it was so perfect. I couldn't get down it. I couldn't f- go through it. Didn't have a leggy. Couldn't go out in front, and I was just locked in. And I came out. George saw it. Because George actually, the couple of ways before, you know, 15 minutes before he was on the beach, he shredded his back on the reef. And I made this thing all the way through. It was like, man, I've got to come back and surf this place. But uh, then uh, I'd met people there and, uh, you know, there was... There was a pretty interesting connection with me and and some of the other surfers and dare I say some of the brotherhood. Yeah. So you know we we did a few little things when we got back to get some money uh-huh. to get to Hawaii because I wanted to go to Hawaii. So I went to Hawaii that year with Porso, um, which was pretty. You went to Hawaii with Porso. With Porso in '73. Yeah, the summer, uh, the start of December. Now, just going kind to of pause there for a second. I, I mean, I, I never, never knew Porso, but and I don't know who he was, but I just hear that he was the nicest bloke getting around. John Porson was one of those people that didn't have an enemy. You know, when the Quicksilver Rip Curl things were starting to develop, he couldn't, you know, he was just such a neutral person. He was one of the most likeable blokes that you would ever meet. He became a solicitor. He was an absolutely great waterman. Like he was just a power swimmer, you know. He was a great waterman, great surfer. He'd been junior champion, I think. I don't know if he won an open champion. And uh, anyhow, he was. He became my best friend, you know. And uh, we really, really bonded. I mean, I could go into funny stories about him probably for years, <laughs> the contests, and you know, taking acid and going out in finals and <laughs> couldn't find my way in and another one I paddled the centre side because I was so out of it I couldn't come and collect my trophy and so all people <laughs> like Stan they all hated my guts because I was so old. look so much talent but look at him he's with those bird rock crew and yeah. you know he's, he's smoking drugs and taking acid and but I so seriously in those days I was so cocky and just I just, I'd say, shit, if I had one arm tied behind my back and one leg, I'd still beat you, sort of thing. A mere flesh wound. Just a mere flesh wound, just lost an arm, yeah. Fuck, there's the other leg gone, you know. And, you know, I had all sorts of experiences, just amazing with Porso, you know. So Hawaii? So Hawaii, we went to Hawaii in 73, which was just, 
mind-boggling for me because, you know, because I'd been um, treated really different as a kid and I never really thought back on it until it, it came to me later. But when I went to Hawaii, I saw all these black crew that ran the joint, you know, like all the boys. So, you know, the, the it was so heavy then. You talk about the we talk call it the Wild West. The day I got there, we went to V Land, and I was with Porso, and that's where I met Reno, and he recognised me. You know, told me to come around the house, and I'll introduce you. The make guy some that boards. you randomly saw in South Australia, hey, the guy. This, that you yep, were- the guy Reno Abelera is really famous. He right. was a great competitive surfer, shaper out of the Brewer Stable, a really eloquent, uh, really educated. His father was one of the heaviest guys in the islands and so were the family. So he was the son that was given the education. He was the great the great black hope. <laughs> Anyhow, so Reno was like an absolute legend, you know, and he was – and people really respected him because of who and what he did. But, man, he had backup that no one else in the world had in those days called his father and family because they were the, the virtual – Hawaiian royalty? No, they were the Hawaiian Mafia. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, they were the fucking Hawaiian Mafia. I mean, the shit was getting done in those days. The Hawaiian Mafia was so strong. The Italian, the Yakuza, no one could get into Hawaii. They were that strong. No one. Until the, they got him. They shotgunned him in a bar. The police shotgunned him to whoa, death whoa, in whoa. a bar. Yeah, so. You mate the surfer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They yeah. fucking killed him. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But it was all part of a how to get the mafia were, were taking hits and trying to take out key people to get into to get into the lucrative Hawaiian Waikiki market because it was like this really rich, really rich resort, the Waikiki in those days. So if the cops shot him, it was a hit. Yeah, oh, he's been paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so now we're going. So off we run now. Off we go. So I meet Reno and. Uh, there's this big commotion on the beach if anyone's been to Hawaii V-Land is about a kilometre and a half kilometre from sunset and there's backyards there's a set of reefs that run probably half a kilometre out to sea Eh? and this guy had smacked a kid and he was a white guy I think he was a Floridian and uh so they beat the crap out of this guy, blood like just thrashed him, watched the end of it, and then they made him swim to sunset around the back of the reef. I mean, this was the wake-up call that, that I was seeing going, wow, these guys run shit, you know? Like, I'd seen a bit of violence They punched it. fuck out of him and made him swim. swim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I'll get into some stories that I saw. This was the year that uh, Mike Purpose, who was a famous American surfer, was doing a drug deal, it went wrong, he ran down the beach, people, we could hear the shotguns going off, um, the shots being fired, ran down, full moon luckily, he had to swim out of pipes in the night, like eight foot, ten foot pipe, and swim out there to, to save his ass, you know. I mean, I was coming from town one time, back from town, because I had a girlfriend, a Hawaiian girlfriend then. She had a penthouse in um, in uh, Diamond Head. Her parents owned the biggest hearing aid company in America. 
So they were really attracted to surfers. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> um, anyhow, so I was coming around Wyoming Corner this time and I saw this guy um, put his brakes on and each sort of the thing and the guy behind him hit the brakes and hit the horn and it was a white guy. And this guy, this fucking huge 300 pound, you know, 150 kilo wine jumped out and he had this big giant knife in his hand with this big thing. And he pulled this guy out of the driver's seat and just mashed his face and put him back in and hopped in his car and drove off. And we all had to drive this guy's in the car. Just I was going, huh, this is this place is pretty, you know. This place is pretty heavy. A couple of days later, I was staying with Ian Cairns, Peter Townend, Porso, and Wayne Dean. That was who was in our house. And PT had a girlfriend with him, or it might have been his wife, and Kanga had his wife wife with him and we lived at sunset point you know so so this whole this whole hawaiian thing was just like you know i'm 18 you know i'm 18 i'm are we uh, still I'm, in the 70s yeah, yeah yeah this is 73 uh, i stayed there till 74 i just stayed there through into january and uh anyhow so i was only 18 19 around there and i come out of the house one day and I look up and I hear this guy, they're yelling at each other on the road and the guy fucking threw something at this guy and jumped in his car. And I look, the guy just goes straight to the trunk of his car and pulls out this sniper rifle. He's going to shoot this guy in front of me. <laughs> and there's a, there's a bunch of MPs, a bunch of MPs, uh, you know, just driving along in a jeep. Like military police. Mil- military police. Yeah. And they actually stopped the guy and I don't know what happened, but... There was shit going on like that all the time, you know. I watched a guy give some hassle someone in the water at sunset because that's where we were surfing a lot. And when we drove by that afternoon, he was standing there in his board shorts and someone had burnt his car. And which someone I mentioned to Reno and he said, oh, no, he got off lightly then. That was a warning. So I'd be going every night to Reno's, you know, and playing ping pong and hanging out and... You know, like just having this time and, you know, the other guys wouldn't come. Porso would come. You know, we were having a great time, you know, and uh, just surfing, no leg ropes, the sunset, you know. Porso lost his board. Fucking, what did he have? I think it was a parish, a Tom Parish, And uh, it washed up to the beach. And as he's swimming in, he watches this guy run down out of the bushes and grab the board and go straight into the bushes and never saw it again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking... From Warnable to Sunset, oh, yeah. you know, oh, warm weather, girls, Californian kind of music. No, there wasn't many girls there. There was one girl on the North Shore and Paul Nielsen got her. Okay. There was no Brazilian girls. It's not nothing like it was But I'm now. getting Beach Boys in my head. Is there music? Waikiki was happening. Yeah. The music was just, you know, the music was phenomenal. You know, we were waiting for the new Jimi Hendrix album. We were waiting yeah. for the new Doors album. We were waiting for the new Led Zeppelin album. There was this guy, Tim Buckley, that came out that shocked us all with his... We had everything, earth, wind and fire, so he could dance all night, party all night, you know, like... Anyhow. (laughs) So everything was... Everything was just so fresh and new. The music, the drugs, the surf, the surfboards, you know. Then one day, we'd watch this movie called... He was in Five Summer Stories, Sea Dreams... And that was the first time we saw this Barry Kaniapuni. 
BK. BK was the best surfer in the world for probably five or six years. No one was close to him. He was coming square off the bottom and coming square up under 12-foot lips, coming back down again, but he'd fall off a lot. And uh, Reno introduced me to him, so I went and got a couple of boards off him. So he said, we should go for a surf. And I said, oh, they said it's not very good. It's north swell or something. And the sunset's a bit washed out and that. And Anyhow, he said, no, no, no. It's near your house. Let's go for a surf. Of course, I had a keel, this the same keel I had in Bali, which was a, a sort of a Wayne Lynch. It had a big sort of base on it and like a mountain. Yeah, it's hard to explain. Not like the... Sort of, it was like that sort of. Yeah, sort like of what did they put under the America to win America's Cup? No, no, no. That was that's a wing keel. Yeah, a keel was like that. So it had a gradient on it, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of like that. You know, just looking at that. Sorry, people, you, yep. just, you won't see it's that. It's like a uh, dorsal. Fin. But it used to go really fast and lock in. So we, again, where are we going? He said, "Oh, we're just going around the back of backyards. We're going to this place, the Boneyard." Went the boneyard, okay, and uh, he said it's one of my favourite spots, and it was solid eight feet. And of course, I've watched him take away, and I went, okay, he's gone. I'm next. He's flicked out. I'm watching him as I'm taking off. Okay, for fuck's sake, I'm on this wave. They call it the boneyard because it goes down to about fucking three inches deep. It's just like live reef, live Dry. coral, and it is just a fucking barrel. And I got a, a couple of waves out there, and I went, this fucking guy's mad, but I ordered a 7.6 <laughs> and an 8.3 um, off him, which Wayne ended up taking. They suited him, and I got a 7.2, a 7.10, and an 8.6 off Reno. So I had this quiver of surfboards there. Um, now... So I was, you know, I had a, a bit of money. So. I mean, I'm not going to ask you about that. Hey? Oh, no, no, no. So, I, no. so we were over there and I was buying boards and what we wanted to do, and I, BK still remembers it. I still see him. He, he owns the Quicksilver shops on the North Shore. He is the, the, the greatest gentleman in the world. BK, he was the best surfer. Eventually, when it got crowded, he just stopped and never went again, never surfed again. I mean, he is still shapes and stuff. He's got a beautiful family. Um, he's a pretty pretty peaceful guy, you know, like Reno's family was a bit more aggro. But just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful human being that could just shape and understand. I remember him because I said, I want a board that I can ride um, this Sanur place. I got a barrel there. Well, it was probably, I was, you could probably see me the whole way, but it was, the lip line was probably 20 to 30 metres long. You know, it was, anyhow, going back to that wave in Sanur that I had mm-hmm. in Bali. So the whole plan was we were going to be going back to Bali the following year and we needed boards, we needed bigger boards. We saw Uluwatu so big one day that we didn't have boards that could surf it. We needed eight sixes and nine footers and stuff, anyhow, and we were, learning Wayne and I were learning then and getting other people's boards which was the way you did it then get the better shapers to shape your boards and then work out and then adapt your style to it anyhow so um so uh we've I've gone through this whole trip uh survived but the boneyard 
you know, and got a bit of respect from BK by that. And he said, and he, he sort of said, man, that was really cool. You're one of the only people I've brought out here that's actually fucking made it. No, man, fucking thank you. I mean, I think falling off. I don't know what would have happened. Yeah, I mean, you were very, very careful. So there was a certain conservati- conservatism to your surfing. Yeah. You know, like you were, I was, as soon as I took off and I saw the bottom, because you know how tropical water is, I mean, it looked to me, there was little boils and eddies. It was that shallow. And anyhow, anybody who's been out there will tell you that. So did so, he, when he quit because it got crowded, did he keep shaping? Yeah, 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 shaping and built businesses. And, you know, yeah. he's a great community, community person, you know, big family. All the Hawaiians have got giant families. Yeah, you know? yeah. But um, then the, just just another funny little story was, well, Reno, I was shaping there one day and it was howling onshore. You know, Kona wind. Not that big, you know, probably six to eight foot, but just messy all fucked up. And Reno is just, he kept running out. He had a shaping room at Rocky Point, which was, you know, a 20 metre run and have a look at the surf. And he kept running there going, man, it's going to be, we're going to go surfing today. We're going surfing today. And I went, fucking no way, I'm going out there. You know, and uh, anyhow, he, uh, <laughs> He goes, right, get your board. Which one? I said, just take your smallest one, yeah? And uh, we went to this place called Mokalaia, which was around out towards Kaina Point. So it's more the southern end of the North Shore. And uh, it's fucking offshore. And he says, whatever you do, don't open your mouth. Now he goes, can you do this? Eh. I went, what? He goes, eh. I went, eh. And he goes, no, a little bit, ooh. And I'm going, ooh, ooh, <laughs> like this. And I'm going, what are we doing? And More like goes, the fonds? You know, fucking, you don't, you just grunt. It's yeah. a grunt. And we get out there, and there's four guys out there, you know, and they're the local guys. I was the first non Sui, so Rito said, you're the fucking first non Hawaiian we've fucking brought here. And shut up, don't let them hear your Australian accent, it'll get me into trouble. And went out there, and sure enough, we get out there and I'm, you should just hang back and Reno, hey, what's up, bro? And there's a few of the big, big boys. You go, hey, what's up? What's up, bro? And then they look at me and go, hey. And I go, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so we did this for two days. And, of course, the hardest thing was was going back to the house and not being able to tell anyone. Yeah. And they're like, where the fuck have you been? You're all salty and sunburnt, you know, like a little bit of colour on you. Oh, I've just been in Waikiki with Reno and just riding. I just had to lie to him because there was no one was allowed to, you know, allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyhow, so so there I am. So I've gone shopping. I bought a new waterbed, new albums. I've got five new boards. I'm heading back to Australia. I've got long hair. Life's got, pretty good. Life's insane. Life's never been better. I've got all my boards and everything. And now it becomes the start of the beginning of the end of the end of the beginning. Anyhow, the start of the beginning, maybe. Hmm, What was that? Anyhow, so I fly back to Sydney. Yeah, to Sydney. And uh, all of a sudden, all the in those days, all the long-haired people got put in one line, and they were searched and spoken to just by the look. You know. Yeah. So sure enough, there I am, get shuffled over here and all of that stuff and the immigration guys talking to me. And whatever. It was customs and immigration then, I think, yeah. 
and I'm there, and this fucking guy is just on my case, and I've got all my uh, boards and, and that, and looking and looking pretty slick, I thought, and anyhow, and he's going, well, we're going to have to charge your order duty on this, we're going to hold it, and I went, oh, you, what? You know, bullshit, and I said, bullshit, and he, he came out and he grabbed me by the hair, and he went, listen here, son, like that, and... And luck, I had a few crew behind me. And my instant reflex was to, as soon as you grabbed your hair, crack him one. Mm. So I swung this punch at him, and I didn't really know how to fight yet. A customs officer? Yeah. Yeah. Customs officer, all right? And I've clipped him. And I I went, fuck, I missed him. But I just clipped his jaw. Next minute I saw the eyes roll back and go white, and he just went backwards, went up against this little sort of, petition and sort of held on to it and slid down unconscious Fuck. I've just knocked a fucking customs off <laughs> not looking good am I oh yeah no no it gets anyhow so I got fucking picked up and dragged away and sort of roughed up pretty bad they didn't hit me um you know I, I always wondered about that because you know Maybe they thought I was going to arc up back because I was fucking... I was really cut then because all we were doing... You imagine when there was no leg ropes and surfing every fucking day? Yeah, you'd be fit as fuck. Fit as fuck, mate. And it was just... And you know, we had bounce in our step and a swagger and we were cocky. We were lords of the universe. And You'd come from the Hawaiian mafia. Oh, uh, Hawaiian mafia survived the Warnable Wampers, and, you know, living in Torquay. Anyhow, so... So anyhow, so I get dragged away and I'm in deep shit. I am now fucking, you've attacked him, this and that. The guy behind me, luckily, who was long-haired, hung around, gave a deposition. He was a fucking solicitor. Fuck. Solicitor, very well respected, had slightly long hair, just come back from Hawaii. He was in the same line. He waited for me for a couple of hours. I missed my connecting flights and everything. And... um Anyhow, so, so uh, what a godsend! Oh yeah, oh yeah, mate. I'd be fucking could still be up in there, you know. Yeah. Anyhow, and uh, anyhow, so uh, he actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gave me his card and said I've filled in a deposition and I saw him hit you first. So when he went for my hair, he actually really thought that he punched me. Yeah. And then all I did was let, and it was, it was a reflex. reflex. Yeah. I mean, fuck, the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, anyhow. Mm. So anyhow, they kept my boards, and I think I'm probably the first person in Australia that ever had to pay duty on the surfboards, and I had to pay, it was something like $150, so it was probably like $1,500 in today's terms. I had to pay $150, pick them up in, um, pick them up in, uh, in Melbourne, and then I went, in those days, I went there and I was shitting myself because I had to go back and, and get the boards, you know. And then they said, we can't do anything. They helped me out. And they, You're not going to pay for the waterbed yet. They kept everything anyhow. So so anyhow, the funniest thing was they sort of looked at me and one of the guys was dark. I don't know whether he was some sort of Mediterranean. He had a bit of dark way in him. He's going, oh, mate, I hear you got a pretty mean right hook. <laughs> And I just went, oh, here we fucking go. Here we go. And they all started laughing and they went, what a fucking epic story. They hated the Sydney customs and Sydney hated Melbourne. 
And they just were there. And they, in the end, they would, I had them just fucking, they said, well, what happened? And I, and I told them, you know, what happened? I said, fuck, honestly, I didn't. And they laughed. They went, that fucking guy, you know, piss out, you know. They would say all these stories. And I was their new mate. You never would have dreamt it. And I remember the guy looking at me and said, whatever you do, do not come through that Sydney airport for another 20 years at least. And I never did. Yeah, I no. only ever flew to Melbourne yeah. because I fucking, I reckon I got away literally with some, yeah, with murder, you know, with a, with knocking a customs guy out. That solicitor. But um, anyhow, so got back, went surfing. Uh, there was a pretty epic, like Wayne and I, I said, you try this 7.6 BK, I'm trying the Reno 7.10. I've surfed it at sunset. It's insane. The seven two, it's a bit of a hot dog board. The eight six goes fucking great, you know. Have a go and anyhow. So it was that February, uh, going into March, when um, Wayne and I, and we he called them the Lawn Lionhearts. There was about four or five of them, two cars of us. We went down to Boneyards, and the swell was that fucking big. And I'd just come from Hawaii and just figured I'd been out at sunset, I'd surfed Waimea, I'd surfed uh, Halieva on a black flag day. We nearly got arrested where it was over 15 foot, no leggies, fucking nearly all, it's a lot of lucky we're all alive. But anyhow, anyhow, so we go down to, down off Massacre and we look out to sea and Wayne's gone, I know this left. Yeah? Now this is really well documented because Wayne wrote a story after it. <clears throat> and uh, it was just when I got back from Hawaii because I still didn't have leg wraps. Yeah. Hmm. So I've gone, fuck, will I take the 8.6 or the 7.10? And I went, I'll take the 7.10. That's my sunset board. I mean, you know, I've, I've caught 12-foot-plus waves on this thing, and it's, it looks about 10 or 12 foot. And we paddle out, and we paddle out, and off we go, yeah, out the channel, we ju- actually we jumped off, and then uh, Wayne jumped off first. I jumped in second. The other five guys were behind us, and as they walked down, a set came through, and they all turned around, and went back to the car, and got back into their clothes. <laughs> but Wayne and I, by the time we looked back, and he, he just went, "Oh, those fucking lion-hearted Sort of, I expected that, you know. Anyhow, so there was five witnesses for this, okay, and uh, we paddle out, and fuck, it is big, it's big, mate. Like it's. It's 15 foot plus and perfect. Light, northerly, monster swell, nearly glassy, you know. I'm looking at these things going, shit, fucking hell, this is bigger than sunset. But anyhow, and Wayne's riding the 7.6. He didn't take the 8.3. So we really, you know, underestimated it. So anyhow, uh, sitting out there for a while, caught a wave and just hung on for dear life. Fucking just hanging out in front of there's no barrel ride and there was no it was get to the ch- end of the channel so i had a wave went out and went fuck is it getting bigger just the whole ocean and wayne had had a wave yeah and then all of a sudden i caught a second wave and same thing this thing seemed really big you know it was just such a giant slope and then down and up high and just cruising and made the channel Flick off. I'm just paddling out, and Wayne. I'm looking at Wayne in this. I can still see it now on the red board. He's in this perfect position in the barrel, and in the fucking barrel's that big. And then I realised his board wasn't in the water. He was in midair, 
he was in perfect midair doing a free fall takeoff in this fucking enormous big left. Yeah. Uh huh. And he went down so hard, and he got uh, went over the falls. He had concussion for three days. Um, he's barely come up. His board was tombstoning. He barely popped up. Meanwhile, I'm still paddling out going, fuck, I think that wave was 20 foot. You know, it really is getting bigger. It's five foot bigger than when we paddled out. Sure enough, the next couple of sets were really fucking big, really big, you know. And because you didn't have leg ropes, you know, it might have, you know, we might be might have been overcompensating, I reckon, five feet, but it wasn't 10 in today's terms. Yeah. So I'm pretty comfortable in saying that some of the sets I saw were 20 feet in in today's today's measurement that's frightening and it was frightening for us i started because now as far as i'm concerned wayne's only fucking drowned he's been washed in i just want to get a wave in so i'm you have sort flashbacks of, of when the boys were driving off oh no the boys are, oh, you remember no <laughs> yeah well no i wasn't i wasn't even thinking about that i was thinking how the fuck am i going to get in and what do i got to catch because that wave was really hollow and the boys said the waves that i caught i caught them a bit further on the shoulder Wayne's taken off and tried to go for the barrel, you know. Anyhow, so anyhow, I'm a more cautious surfer, maybe. Yeah, anyhow, so <laughs> I get out there and I'm paddling out and I'm out where we've been taken off and I look out and the fucking horizon there's a black line. Oh, no, yeah. And I am looking at this thing and I am going and I'm looking where I am and I reckon I've got five minutes. So I have fucking paddled out to sea on a 710, um, you know, three inches thick, big square thing, paddles unreal. I have paddled my guts out to sea going, fuck, there's a wave. There's a fucking monster wave coming. What do I do? Like I'm looking around and there's just nowhere I can go but out to sea and into the channel. But it's like as big as a football field out there, the takeoff. Right. Like there's the inside, there's... Is it sort of like Sunset? It's got a massive playing Sort of, area. yeah. It's not as not as bad as Sunset. It's a little bit more lined up, but yeah. anyhow. So meanwhile, Wayne's inside. He's sort of recovered and come up, and he's just in outer space. So he sort of got on his board, and he figures I'm out there. So he's at, way down at the end of the wave. And um, anyhow, so... Um, Oh, fuck I actually still actually gets to me this a little bit you know because it was that big anyhow so off we go the waves start coming and I've been paddling for five minutes and I see this fucking wave I'm a little dot in the ocean and I'm looking at this thing and it's ten foot bigger than anything I've seen at least so I'm thinking this thing's thirty foot you know like and I've sort of gone my god off the back uh, of Hawaii. Uh, oh, yeah, no. It is beyond anything. Beyond, I surf Waimea at about 20, probably 20 foot, what they call 20 now, but not the 30. That, you know, so I've seen some pretty big waves. You know, I've seen 20, 20 foot waves, 15 to 20 foot. I've seen quite a few of those in the last few months. You know, a bit of a challenge. But no leggy. No fucking water security. No, nothing. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden I see this wave and it's that fucking big and I paddle and I, I'm, I, I'm not terrified, I'm scared, but I know I'm going to go over it. When I go over this fucking wave, it's a set of waves and the next one's bigger and I go over it 
Now I'm shitting myself because I'm going up these fucking walls and I can feel the updraft. As I went over the second wave, there's a third wave. And I've gone, oh, thank... And it's it's so much spray that it's really hard to see now, yeah? yeah? And I'm head down, ass up, and I look at the next one and it is so fucking big. And I think, I'm going to make it. I go over the next wave and the next wave's half as big again. It went off my fucking Richter scale. It was just, I just, I can hardly remember anything, anything at all, yeah? I paddle over this. Meanwhile, Wayne's watching him, and he's way out in the channel now. These waves are perfect. And he looks at this little fucking dot out to sea, and it's me paddling my guts out, trying getting over the shoulder. You know, I'm a fair way out on the shoulder, but they're breaking perfect. Like, Wayne still talks about these big barrels. Meanwhile, the guys on the beach are going, he's fucking dead. My God, this is it. And I have gone over, and I don't remember this, but it's in the the article. I'm trying to find the article. It was put in the Herald Sun. Yeah. Michael Gordon put it in there. Um, it was a half-page story that Wayne wrote. And he saw me paddle up this thing, and it broke next to me. I can't remember that. I can remember going over the top of the wave, eh? and I got over the top. I was that relieved because I could hear this roar, and that must have been the wave. The hot, There was just noise and... I was beyond fucking fear. I was nearly paralysed with fear, but still paddling. And I remember, I went over, and as I got over it, I stood up on my surfboard and ran off the front of it and nearly tried to fly. Like, I went over it, just fucking trying trying to get get as far over the back. And for that split second, I relaxed and went, fuck, unbelievable. Then the wave broke. And I went backwards for over 100 metres. I nearly went over the falls on it. But there was that much fucking water moving out to sea. And if you want to talk about the most scared I've ever been in my life, I reckon I nearly had a heart attack and fucking blacked out. It was that fucking big and that fucking... Well, you know, in those horrific moments, people black out things. Yeah, you well, that's, that's why I sort of can't really remember... Um, I remember looking at the size of the wave and just going, this is it, this is it. And I just was just mechanically paddling up over it until all of a sudden I realised I got there and I like I snapped out of it and then tried to... F- I think I tried to fly. <laughs> I reckon I was flapping my fucking arms. I reckon I was trying anything at that stage. Yeah. So um, so that was pretty, pretty amazing um, in itself. Uh, survived that. Uh, and then we... You know, like those were the days then came in. Wayne was fucked for three days, concussion. I was really, really shaken up by that because I think it had to be a 40-foot wave. I think it was a 40. I keep going over it, the scaling up, what we saw when we got out there, even if you knock five foot off. I've seen you judge waves and knowing the people that you're with, if you want to call it 40, I reckon you, you got I, You know, I, I mean, it was off every scale I'd ever seen, but it was just a big black fucking lump of water. And I, the waves that I went over had to be easily 30 feet because it went 20, I think, to 25, take five feet off because of the, you know, the leg ropes and the fear factor. And, you know, you, I, wouldn't, you, I wouldn't have said it was a 10-foot wave. I know what a 10-foot fucking wave looks like. Yeah. And this was bigger than Wymere, the 20-footers. And the wave that Wayne caught, I thought he thought it was 18-foot <laughs> fucking... Something like that, you know, 18. I, I never worked out. Sure, it wasn't 19 and a quarter. 
So anyhow, um, yeah, so uh, we survived that. Uh, you know, we, we, we did trips. It went anyhow. I'm, 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 we, trying, we, to, I'm trying to shortcut it here. No, no, I don't want you to. Because what I'm going to get to now yeah. is I think we can stop it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. this next bit. Yeah. Because the next thing was Easter. And just before Easter, one of the biggest days at Bells, uh, I'm going to show you some photos later. Uh, actually, it's when I was called Torquay's public enemy number one. Okay, and there's, there was a whole article written in tracks. I've got the, I've got the shot of it somewhere. Anyhow, um, so I got busted just before Easter. I was set up by the cops. So just after this massive swell? Swell, yeah, just leading into Easter. I can't remember it was easy or late, but there was one giant big day and uh, I got busted that night and uh, got busted for possession of what became three and a half ounces of hash oil and by the, the federal cops. So I was taken away and fucking got bail and was allowed to compete in the contest, but, you know, I was on, on bail Uh on bail for 22 months, reporting to the police every day, and uh, just the local I, coppers. Oh no, no, these were the feds. These were federal cops. They weren't state cops. They were federal cops, because someone else had put me in. Uh, and ah. a, uh, not a friend, but someone that I'd known from Queensland. Yeah, and they Three set, under they the bus. set me up. They threw, oh, threw me under the bus. It was a pretty ugly, pretty pretty ugly time. But a long story short, uh, and that's why I think we can cut it. I had to was stuck in Torquay for two years, where I started businesses, a sheepskin business. I bought off Greeny, the original UGG manufacturing. I made sheepskin boots and sheepskin jackets with my wife, and um, supposedly rehabilitated myself in that period. Got a job, you know, started a company, blah 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 blah, and then I went to court and uh, got four years with a three-year minimum, which Michael Gordon, before he died, was still saying, yeah, you're still the longest. You won the Australian Championships by far. There's no one in the history, in any court in Australia, that's even come close to getting what I got for a first offence, for possession only. So I got four years with a three-year minimum. Um, I pleaded guilty. I got done up by the judge. I got done up by the prosecutor. Uh, they got me to got me to plead guilty and do a, a deal. So I did a deal that I'd get out on a bond or something like that, probation, because I'd already served 22 months. And then I got a four-year with a three-year minimum, and they threw me into Pentridge. And I think we could stop there because the next part... Yeah. The two years in jail is really interesting. Wow. Because <laughs> I was in with Chopper Reed. The guys that blew up Russell Street Police Station was my mentor and best friend in there. So uh, I went in, was what you'd call a squarehead, what they said never, didn't even realise there. What kind of word, what's a squarehead? Squareheads, someone that just knows nothing about crime, you know. It's, okay. it's like a, a, a criminal has never been charged for murder. Because you can only get charged for murder in those days if you sign a verb, uh, sign a confession, and if you just hang in there and say nothing, you you'll get manslaughter, you know, which means you're probably out in eight years, you know. Um, 
So the next the next part is, you know, this surfy kid, this kid from Warnable who's been through all of this stuff and he's had this meteoric ray rise to fame and, you know, like now he's shaping boards and he's just, you know, like, you know, Mate, yeah. Lord of the Universe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which all of a sudden, then I became Lord of the Puniverse. Now I'm in. Now I'm in deep shit. I'm in jail. I'm in the, the heaviest prison in Australia with the heaviest crims in Australia. So I figure that's a, another little story to start off with, and how I survived, the effects it had on me, um, and then basically what I did before when I got out. And there was a couple of little, couple of little things there that I got to be a little bit careful of. And then I basically started competing again. And yeah, competing again. And then all of a sudden, I've made the Australian team and gone to France, which is then becomes one of the most incredible times of my life. Yeah. Get get this feeling I have these highs and lows. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Thank oh, I you. don't know if, if people are interested. You know, like all I've done is give a little bit of a background history of sort of who we were and what surfing was in those days before it really became commercial, before contests mattered, before companies started making lots of money. I mean, it was a means to an end for a lifestyle before. The money mattered, and then the power, and then there was the, the egos in the, in the industry. And I think that's the really next interesting part, because I think the 80s and 90s was an amazing time for the industry. And fuck, it'll probably end up being three parts, because then you talk about the last 10 years, and what I've seen is just the collapse of the industry. Mm. And, but you know, still, we got surfing. Still, mate. Yeah, I had a beautiful surf today at Bell's. It was uh, three to five foot, glassy. How fun was it? Fuck, mate. It was two of us out. Yeah, I surfed Winky. It was fun too. Fuck, mate. There was no one out. No. It was me and this other guy on a red board. And uh, yeah, I just had so many waves. I'm trying to get fit for Morocco. So I'm on a longer board sort of surfing and trying to get the legs going. But um, yeah. Morris. We'll do another one. We'll Thank see you. how this one goes, mate. All good. Thank you so yeah. much. Now, you hang on. I'm going to put this bit of toe surfing on. My oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My Okay, there you have it. There was my chat with the one and only Morris Cole. Um, uh, I told you there was a balls-to-the-wall life of living. Huh? I challenge anybody to get out there and have a crack at it like that. Uh, awesome, Morris. Thank you so much for coming in, and I can't wait to do part two. Uh, and while I'm on it, I'm just going to give Damo Cole, Morris' son, who was on the show a few weeks ago uh, as he was running for as an independent for South Barwon. Now, at his first run as an independent for South Barwon, anything in politics, he got 10%, 10% of the vote. It's massive. So congratulations, Damo. Um, you are a superstar. Uh, keep up the good work. Can't wait to see what's uh, what's next for you, my friend. Anyway, if you're listening, thanks so much for listening. Uh, whoever you are, wherever you are, I hope the sun's shining or the rain is raining if you need rain. Um, anyway, until next time, adios. Adios.